message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. Passage. I pray that you'll open our eyes, you'll give us uh, attentive ears and attentive hearts to this message. May we see what you meant for us to see from this passage, and may, as a result of it, may we desire Christ more. May we treasure Christ more because of what you have said to us in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What was the nicest meal that you've ever had? You know, if you think, where, what was the best meal that I've ever eaten before? Where was the best place I've ever eaten? You probably think back to that, that place. Um, the nicest meal I actually ever have eaten in my life was after I spent a summer with Kayla, ironically. So we spent a whole summer on the mission field, and the mission agency we worked with afterwards wanted to take us to Emerald Lagasse's restaurant. Did you go to us with them? Emerald Lagasse's? Okay. You may have been still in Venezuela at the time. Okay, so yeah. so we got invited. They booked us reservations. You had to book reservations four months in advance. So they booked us reservations at Emerald Lagasse's, and he's the guy on TV that does the bam, let's kick it up a notch. I always throw stuff, and bam. So we, we got to go to his restaurant. And when we got there, we, we didn't have nice clothes with us because whenever you pack for a summer on the mission field, you don't, you don't pack nice clothes, you bring like two pairs of pants and five shirts and you just keep rotating because you're going to get them dirty anyway. And um, So we didn't have nice clothes when we came back from the mission field. And we sit down, so we're like the, the most undressed people there. And after we sit down, the, the manager of the restaurant comes up to us, uh, or he takes us to the table, and he pulls out our seats and they all sit us down. And the table already had plates on it when we got there. So after they sit us down, they pick up all the plates and take them off the table. Then they go get new plates and put them on the table. Still don't understand the logic of it. It was all nice and decorative. So they take all the plates off. Then they put all brand new plates on, even though there were already nice plates in the first place. So then the manager comes and looks at us, and he's like, oh, where have you guys been? Obviously, you're not as dressed. You don't have suit and ties on as everyone else. Where have you guys been? We told him we spent the summer on the mission field, and... Um, we, uh, we just got done serving the people of Venezuela and uh, we showed him, he's like, uh, we showed him our bracelet. We had a bracelet that a lady from the city dump made us and uh, we said that uh, this lady gave us this bracelet to pray for. Would you like one just to remind you to pray for as well? And he says, yes, and I want to give you guys a treat as a, as a result of that. So uh, we give him this bracelet and he leaves and he comes back with three different guys and they all have full trays of food. And it was literally, he gave us one of every single item on the dessert menu. It was over $250. And uh, he, he gave that to us, and he said that his wife was a missionary, and he wanted to bless us because he knows that we have been a blessing. But when we sat down, the reason I bring this story up, and one of the funny things about the situation, it was the nicest meal I've ever been to. And one of the funny things about it was just how crazy it was. You sit down, and one of my friends accidentally, in sitting down, his elbow nudged a fork off the table. And when he nudged it off the table, it falls off and it's still ringing. And a guy comes by and grabs it. Like It doesn't even have enough time to stop moving. 
A guy grabs it, and then there's another guy coming from another direction, and he puts a fork on the table. Like this happened in three seconds. Like literally, there's like there's that's their whole job is one grabs forks that hit the ground, the other one puts new forks on the head the table. Their sole job in this place. So I was like, this is amazing. I have to try this. So we naturally tried it once or twice just to see. If it was truly indeed, if they were that as, ta- or as talented as we thought they were, and they truly were. But, I tell this whole story, this long drawn out story to say, meals play an important role in our life. They're very important. You know, we have big meals for birthdays. Usually, your whole family sometimes will get together for your birthday and go out to eat wherever you want. Or, Fourth of July, many of you grilled out last night and had fireworks and we gather together for weddings. There's food after weddings. We, we play a key role. Mills play a key role in our lives. And they also play a key role in Scripture. And this is one of the first mills in the Bible. And you understand what I mean by playing a key role as we get into it. But I'm going to go, by, uh, go down this verse by verse. The reason I didn't read it all initially is because it's a long passage. And we're going to break it down verse by verse. Um, I may take some sections, but let's go ahead to verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from this tree in the garden? How does Satan tempt Adam and Eve? What's the first way that he tempts them? He gets them to question the Word of God. That's not all too different than we are today. It's not all too different how God or how Satan works today. He gets you initially to start questioning the God. Did God really say this? Or did God really mean this? Can we really trust what God said? Is it really something that's trustworthy? You know, how is it that unbelievers, when they confront us, what do they usually do? They do the same lies that Satan started off with. Is this Bible really trustworthy? Did God really say that? Can we really trust that this is God's word? The same lie starts the same way. Next, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, she responds back to him with this, God said that we may not eat of the tree in the garden, or we may eat of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, You will not surely die. So notice this progression. First he says, Did God really even say that? Was that even really God's words? Now he starts causing Eve to question the truthfulness of God. It's a progression. Did God say it? Okay, if He said it, that's not really true. You can't really depend on this. You can't really trust God's Word for what it is. That's exactly what people tell us whenever they come at us. Once again, when unbelievers come at us and confront us with Scripture, it's full of contradictions. There's contradictions everywhere. We can't really trust it. Can you really trust it? It doesn't really mean that. That's exactly what they do. You will not... This isn't really true. This is the way they confront us. And this is the same way Satan confronted them. Second Timothy tells us, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's for reproof, it's for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. God's Word is trustworthy. We can put our hope in it. Usually when people say they're contradictions, you usually want to ask them where. 
Because most of the time they just say that because they've heard that from people and they sa- it sounds pretty good as an excuse. But God's Word, we can bank on it. We can put our hope on it. Next down to verse 5. The serpent progresses on. So first he says, can you, is it really God's Word? Can you really trust it? That's not true. And then he says this. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent is questioning the goodness of God. You know, God doesn't want you to do this because He's mean. He's not a loving God. You know, He knows if you do this, this is what's going to happen. He's he's trying to trick you. You can't trust a God like that. That's what the serpent is doing. Think back to your conversations you have with your friends now. God's not loving. How can God be loving if He says this? You know, they always bring up, especially in culture wars right now, is look at the Leviticus. You guys don't apply all that. How can God be loving and command those things? They know nothing about the Bible. They maybe know two verses they've seen on posters or billboards. And yet, for somehow or another, when it fits their situation, they now become a Bible scholar. So, how is it then when Satan tempts us that we can overcome his temptation and his lies. A couple things I want to point out here at the beginning. What could have Adam and Eve done to prevent this? They could memorize God's Word and take God at His Word. When Satan brings you up, did God really say this? Actually, He did. He said it right here. Did God really mean this? Yes, He does, because He said it right here. Memorize God's Word. So when Satan attacks you and he tries to convince you of lies, you can preach the Gospel to him. It's very common for Martin Luther. He would constantly yell at at Satan. He would get in a room and lie down. And all his thoughts and all the wrestlings in his mind, he would start preaching the Gospel at Satan. And he would call him words that you cannot say from a pulpit. But he would say very comical things about Satan. And he would preach the Gospel to him. When Satan tries to convince you you're an unbeliever, you bring up your baptism. That those who were buried with Christ have been risen with Him. We have that assurance that He who began a good work with us will surely complete it. You preach passages like that. I've been buried with Christ. Therefore, I know I'll be raised with Him. You preach the gospel to Satan when he tempts you with lies. You fill your mind with with God's Word. You fill your house with God's Word. You preach to yourself. It's not, the Bible is not just to tell others that they're wrong. The Bible is to preach to yourself, to be thinking about it, to be wrestling with these verses in your mind and in your heart. Next, let's go to verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Food plays a huge role. I said this at the beginning. Food plays a a huge role, not in just Scripture, but in my life. You know, you finish your meal, you're already thinking about what your next meal is. You know, you, you plan events around meals. You're on your way to church in the morning, you think, where am I going to go out to eat after church? Sometimes... Probably right now your your stomach's starting to grumble and you're thinking, what am I going to eat? I need to get some food in my body. 
If you're like my kids, 10 minutes after your meal, you're already thinking about your next snack. Daddy can have a snack. Mommy can have a snack. Meals play an important role in our lives, but they also play a major role in Scripture. The Bible begins with a meal. Adam and Eve eat of this fruit. The Bible ends with a meal. We're all in the New Jerusalem and eat of the marriage supper of the Lamb, so we're eating with God once again. God provides manna for the people of Israel as they travel through the wilderness. Jesus sits down and eats with sinners. And the Pharisees confront Him on this. They say, why do you eat with sinners? Jesus provides wine at a wedding feast. Jesus calls Himself the bread of life. Paul says, when we eat of the Lord's Supper, we're spiritually eating of Christ. Meals are important in Scripture. They're also important in our lives. You may think that, you know, these are just insignificant places in Scripture, but think about this. Meals are a great place for ministry to take place. Every one of us here are probably pressed for time. You may be thinking, I don't really have time to do everything that I want. I've got a very busy work week. Um, I've got to do these things with my family. I've got to do these things with my wife. I'm very busy. I don't have time to do these. But know this. Look at what Jesus does. He has meals with people. Use meals as gospel opportunity. Meals are a great place to share the gospel. They're a great place to invite others over. If you have, if you know any college kids, I'll tell you this: you don't, you don't have to come up with a, a fancy venue to invite them over. If you say there's free food, they're going to be there. If you tell me there's free food, I am going to be there. When I'm not eating, I'm practicing eating by chewing gum. We all eat. Everyone loves to eat. Use your meals as opportunities. Never eat alone. Invite people to your family meals. If you're looking for a way to do evangelism, invite unbelievers to your house. Have meals with them. Turn conversations into gospel conversations. Everyone eats. Try to take advantage of those. That's what we see in Scripture. And meals point to something greater. Next, verse 7. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned against one another, it's not that just their relationship with God was tainted. You know, not only did, did they fall, and not only is their relationship, not only there's separation between God and man, but there's also now separation between man and man. That's true in our relationships today as well. Think about this. Why is it that uh, there's communication problems between men and women? Why is there communication problems between you and your friends? It's because of sin. Why is it that when something happens in your life and, and you're, you're ashamed to share it with anyone, you're, you're afraid? It's like Adam and Eve, they, they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves because there's shame inside. They didn't want the world to see what was going on inside of them. And that's what's going on with many of us. We're afraid to share with others because we're afraid to confess our sins to one another because of the shame. We sow fig leaves and we pray that no one sees past these walls we've built up, these fig leaves that we've sown. 
We pray that no one sees past them, that they may actually get to know the real me or the real you. The gospel confronts that. And we'll see that here in a moment. But this is true in all our lives, in all our friendships. We hide from others. We try to convince others we're something we're not. We pray that no one looks past the fig leaves we've sown. Now verse 8. And he heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the, the trees in the garden. But God, said, uh, the, God called to the man and said, Where are you? Around the 1970s and 80s, um, a false teacher came about named uh, Gregory Boyd, very popular in Minnesota, and then another guy as well, Clark Pinnock, comes about. Both two very popular names. Uh, and they come up with what's called this doctrine. It's called open theism. And there wasn't a name for it before because no one believed it. I mean, it's only 20 to 30 years old. No one in the church has ever believed it. But what they taught from a verse such as this, and the reason it's important, I'm not just trying to give you theological language, but what open theism teaches is that God doesn't know everything. And the reason they did this, think about this, when events like 9-11 happen, when, when terrible shootings take places in churches, um, when terrible tragedies happen, how do you explain that God is in control? And the way they came up with was they started saying, God doesn't know. God didn't know that was going to happen. He didn't see that coming. You know, God's all loving. He didn't know anything like this was going to happen. Let me tell you this. God is in control. He can be trusted. He's a loving God. Who is it that tempts Job? Satan. But is it God in control? Yes. Satan is on a, le- a small leash, as Charles Spurgeon used to say. So why, does, why then does God call out to them, Adam and Eve, and say, where are you? Is it that He doesn't know? No. He calls out and says, where are you? It's like a parent. When you see your child break something and you watch the entire scene and you want to know if they're going to be honest with you, you said, who did that? The kid naturally responds, she did it. And we know good and well that it was not her. It's a confronting question. It's not a question of he doesn't know. He's trying to confront them, to cause them to repent. And yet they refuse to. Next down to verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. So this is how they respond to God. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to? The man said, The woman you gave me to, or gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Notice that the first response. It's the, it's the blame game. You know? Adam, why did you do this? It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. The woman that you gave me. Not only is he blaming Eve, he's blaming God. Why is it that this this terrible situation comes up in my life? How often do we blame God on it? Terrible tragedies come and we start pointing the finger at God. Or we start saying it's others. It's always the blame game. It's never something that I've done. I never want to own up to my own sin. I've always got to put it off on someone else. What does Eve do? She does the same thing. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman responds, The serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. 
She acts just like Adam and blames it on others. Rather than listening to to the Lord and taking the Lord at His word, they're both deceived by Satan's lies and they start blaming others. Now down to verse 14 and 15. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and all the du- uh, and, you- and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his head, and he shall bruise your heel. Or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, if you've listened to me talk at all, if you haven't slept through all my sermons, I bring up this, this passage quite often. It's about, you have a head-crushing idea here that the serpent's going to bruise the heel of, seed, uh, of the seed of Eve, and one day her seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. In the early church, this passage became known as the Proto-Angelion, which means the first gospel. This is the very first gospel. God doesn't leave Adam and Eve there without hope. As soon as they sin, He gives them, He makes a promise to them. They have not deserved this. They have just disobeyed the Lord. And then the Lord graciously does something. The Lord does a work. It's not that they've worked out, they've done enough good in order to merit Him to do something. No, they are living in sin and God has graciously redeemed them. Interestingly enough, the word Golgotha means place of the skull or place of the head. And at Golgotha, when we come to the New Testament, this promise is fulfilled. Because the seed of Eve at the cross, at Golgotha, crushes, at the place of the head, crushes the head of the serpent and sets all of God's people free. This promise over and over again is traced throughout the Bible. Over and over again they look to this as the hope that God has not abandoned them in their sin and that God would one day redeem them. At the place of the skull, God redeems us. Now down to verse 16. And, the woman, and to the woman He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall work all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember back to our previous chapters here. In the early, uh, early on in Genesis 1, God commands Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're going to hear this promise over and over again. He also calls Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden. Those two commands are given to them. And now, once they sin... The goal, think about this, the goal when Adam and Eve were given those commands was to take what was true in the garden and fill the whole earth so that the whole earth is filled with God's glory. You have these people, over and over, they're having children, be fruitful and multiply. Over and over and over again, they were to create image bearers, people who gave the image of God to the world until one day the whole earth was declaring God's glory. The whole earth was filled with people who looked 
and spoke like the Lord. The whole earth was to give God's glory, to give God glory. Habakkuk gives us a promise later on in Habakkuk 2.14. He says, One day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And now this curse that is given relates directly to that. Adam and Eve are called to be fruitful and multiply. Now, it is difficult for them to be fruitful and multiply because of the pains of childbearing. Adam and Eve are called to work and keep the garden. Now work is difficult. Why is this important? Why does this matter to us? When your friends have a miscarriage, when your friends lose a child at an early age, point them back to this passage. It's because of sin that these terrible things take place. And it's because of Genesis 3.15 we find the hope of the gospel. That God's going to crush the serpent. When your friends complain about how terrible work is, do you notice that work came about before the fall? Work was not meant to be a bad thing. The pain of work, that came after the fall. Amen. The pain of work is the result of the fall. And we long for the day when Christ returns and fruitfulness is no longer difficult and work is no longer difficult. No longer will anyone have a case of the Mondays. Verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Why is this important that he names her this? Well, remember back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. Over and over again, we're going to go back to this. Over and over again in the Bible, go back to that. But Adam believed the Lord. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing. Adam heard the promise of God that one day he was going to crush the head of the serpent and set all his people free through the seed of Eve. He heard this promise. He heard this gospel, this early gospel, and he believed the Lord. So faith comes from hearing. He hears the Lord and he puts faith in it. And as a result of that, he names his wife Eve, mother of all living. Verse 21, And the Lord, uh, and the Lord made for Adam his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is interesting because the law hasn't been given yet. Sacrifices haven't been put into place yet. We don't, we, don't have, we don't have Deuteronomy yet. We don't have Leviticus yet. We don't have Sinai take place yet. So how do, why is it necessary for sacrifice to take place here? Sin has occurred, and once again, what does God do? He redeems the people. It's not that they have done anything. Over and over again, I want to stress this concept to you. The salvation, we are running from God. We are fleeing from God. We're doing everything we're not supposed to do. And what does God come do? He comes after us and He drags us along. And He gives us new clothes of garment. They continually rebel against God and are angry with God. And God comes and graciously redeems them. They don't deserve this. It's salvation by faith alone, apart from works. They have done no works to merit God's goodness. And what's He do? He sacrifices an animal and clothes them with the skin of an animal. 
This also reminds us that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood in Scripture. This will play a more significant role when we come to the New Testament. When we see Jesus comes and becomes the sacrifice for us. He sacrifices His blood so that we can be clothed in His righteousness. We come to Him with filthy rags. Our righteousness, Isaiah tells us, is as filthy rags. We come to Him with nothing good to offer. Nothing at all to offer the Lord. And God dies on a cross for us and clothes us in His righteousness. So when the Father looks down upon us, He doesn't see Adam the sinner, Billy the sinner, Tyler the sinner. He sees Christ. He clothes us in Christ. That's the beauty of the Gospel. When we were rebellious and hated the Lord, Christ came and died. Let's read this last section here. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now let's reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent out from the garden of Eden, or sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground, uh, the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man out of the east of the garden, a place cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned the way, or that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, they're kicked out of God's presence. Similar to how Israel, when they refuse to obey God's law, they're kicked out of the land. But that's not the end of the story. This is not the last time you're going to hear a tree story in Scripture either. At a tree, sin came into the world. But also at a tree, forgiveness comes into the world. But that's not the last one either. When you come to Revelation 22, we're in the New Jerusalem and they're in heaven. Once again, you're going to hear about this tree of life. The same tree of life that was there that they were banned from. But there's no longer a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's only a tree of life. At the first tree bought death, at the second tree... Christ drinks the cup of wrath for us to bring us back to Him so that we can once again have a meal with Him and eat of this tree of life. This is the hope of the Gospel. This is what we're all building up to. This is what all the meals are building up to. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, this is what we should be reminded of. That meals play a vital role in our life. They play a vital role in the church. They're preparation for a greater meal. And that meal is when we finally get to heaven and we eat with the Lord in His presence, the marriage supper of the Lamb, because of what Christ did at another tree and ate and drank the cup of wrath. We now can come to Lord's Supper and drink the cup of blessing and eat of His body. I'm going to ask Oli if she'll come back up, and we're going to have a time of response.